quiet. We're gonna try to keep your attention in an interview about keeping your attention. Uh, about attention spans and Dr. Gloria Mark is joining us. She's chancellor's professor at the University of California, Irvine and the author of the forthcoming book, Attention Span. So Dr. Mark, welcome. Thank you for having me. No problem. So uh, I think that a lot of people know what ADHD is, um, but uh, I was reading about in in regards to this topic, uh, being in a state of flow, which is apparently the opposite. What is that? I don't think I've ever heard that before. So, so flow is considered the optimal state of attention, and this is a kind of uh, attention that was discovered by a psychologist, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. And he discovered that sometimes people do things that are risk taking, things that they enjoy. And when you're in a state of flow, you're so immersed in something that you're completely immune to time. So you forget about the passage of time. So that's that's the idea of flow, you're at your utmost creativity. You are challenged, you're, you're not too challenged. You're not under challenged, but it's actually that sweet spot of just the right amount of challenge. Okay, there's so many questions I have about this. So apparently there are four types of attention, which I didn't know about. I thought there was only one type. What are they and how do you recognize them? Right, so most people tend to think of attention as being in two states. You're focused or you're not focused. So when I first started studying this, my colleagues and I, we're thinking, you know, you can be engaged in something and very challenged. You can also be engaged in something and not at all challenged, like when you play solitaire. And those are completely different kinds of attention. And so we developed this framework where, you know, you can be engaged or not engaged, challenged or not in challenge, challenged. And we came up with four different kinds of attention when you're. Engaged and challenged, we call it being focused. Engaged, not at all challenged, like playing solitaire, we call that a rote attentional state. You're not engaged or challenged, we call that being bored. And when you're challenged and you're just not at all engaged, we call that frustrated. Okay, interesting. Um, So um, now there's apparent, like, I've always also wondered about multitasking. Um, and I remember watching an Ariana Huffington speech, and she said there is no such thing as multitasking. Uh, you can only focus on one thing at a time. You think you're focusing on two things, but you're actually not. It's just going back and forth. So, uh, does is that true? And does multitasking help you become more productive or less productive? That's right. I mean, it's just not humanly possible to do two things that require effort. At the same time. Now, if one of these things doesn't require effort, if it's automatic, yes, you can do that. You can chew gum and walk at the same time. You can drive and you can have a conversation because driving can be automatic. But as soon as someone swerves in front of you, it's no longer automatic and you have to put in some effort and you can't, you stop talking. So you can't do these two things. Now, is multitasking good or bad for us? Well, Decades of laboratory research show that when people multitask, they get stressed. We know that blood pressure goes up. There's There are markers of stress in the body that indicate that people are under stress. 
we we know from uh, real world experience. Um, we've in in my research, we've had people wear heart rate monitors, and we see that the more they switch their attention, the higher it's their stress. And of course, people report being psychologically stressed. Their perceived stress is high. All of these measures are consistent. Now, multitasking is also bad because people make more errors when they multitask. And this is shown in studies with physicians, nurses, pilots. So it's it's shown in real world professions. So has our, lack, our shortest attention spans gotten considerably worse in the digital age? Yes. So I, I first started studying this back in 2004. And at the time, you know, I was pretty astonished to find that people spent on average of about two and a half minutes on any screen. Uh, then in 2012, uh, it went down to about 75 seconds on average on any screen. And then in the last five, six years, it seems to have reached a steady state of about 47 seconds. This is measured through objective computer logging techniques. And, and others have also replicated this result within a few seconds. So yes, it seems that attention spans are diminishing. So um, first, I want to understand that a little bit better. Is that they're going email, Twitter, read an article, and and really every forty seven seconds that they're switching back and forth between those things. And does getting a sandwich is that included in that, or is it just <laughs> they switch between? screens every 47 seconds. Okay, so first of all, we we only measured what people do on a screen, right? Okay. So we can only look at computer, phone, and tablet screens. Remember, it's an average. And that means that sometimes people spend longer periods of time, sometimes they spend less. If we if we look at the median, that's the midpoint. That's 40 seconds. So that means half of all the observations that we found show that attention spans are shorter than 40 seconds. So it, it means that sometimes, yes, you spend longer periods of time, right? But if we look at the median, half the time, our, our attention on our screens are 40 seconds or less. That sounds pretty disastrous. Um, like, are, are we screwed here? Uh, <laughs> is our attention span never gonna go back to quote unquote normal, not that anything is really normal. Because I bet if you went back and studied it 150 years ago, it would have been much longer than two and a half minutes. Um, and so uh, are we toast? And is there <laughs> a significant downside to having such a short attention span? So uh, are we toast? Well, we, we, don't, we don't know what what's gonna happen in the future, but I, I am an optimist. And I, I always believe that when the pendulum starts swinging one way, it's going to swing back. We, we may have reached the nadir. You know, it may not be possible for attention spans to get any shorter because then people would just not be able to apprehend anything. So it's, it's really hard to predict what, what's going to happen. But I, I am an optimist and I do think that there are things people can do to change and people can take control of their attention and they, they can have agency. So let's talk about that because I think taking control of your attention is in some ways taking control of your mind. 
Yes. And uh, that is both very challenging, but also potentially very rewarding. So how does how does anyone begin to do that? Yeah, so uh, I, I draw from the work of a very famous social psychologist, Albert Bandura, who worked on getting people to improve self-efficacy. And this was in areas like stopping smoking, stopping substance abuse. And I think some of the the principles that he uh, wrote about can be applied to our attention. For example, people can learn to become more intentional in their actions. You can become more intentional whenever you go grab, try to grab a cigarette. Uh, You can also become more intentional every time you try and grab your phone. And you can probe yourself and try to understand the reasons why you do these kinds of automatic actions. When you understand reasons for why you're doing something, it helps you take control. Right. So the first step is to be to make these automatic actions more conscious. Uh, another example of something we can do is to do uh, to practice forethought, and what that means is to imagine how our current actions are going to impact our future selves, and future selves could be a few hours from now, could be at the end of the day. So if I'm going to spend an hour on social media. You know, how will that impact my evening when it's 10 p.m.? Am I still going to be working on the deadline or would I be watching TV, reading a nice book, having a glass of wine? So, forethought can help us uh, practice control. So, look, everybody has their own perspective, right? And and there's different, um, you know, buckets that people fall into. Uh, And I'm super lucky on this count. Uh, I'm in a constant state of flow, not a big deal. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm partly getting around, but partly serious. And so I got lucky on that one. Um, so how debilitating is the short attention span? What does it prevent you from doing? Well, it prevents people from getting into any kind of deep thought. Because every time we switch our attention, there's something called a switch cost. And a switch cost, I mean, literally, it's the amount of time that's required to reorient to do something else. Plus, you expend a lot of mental resources every time you switch attention. And you don't have mental resources left over to actually do the work that that you plan to do. Yeah, I get it. That makes sense. Uh, You're spending a lot of time in transition. Constantly in transition, every 47 seconds in transition, right? And so that that it can be debilitating. All right, any last tips for how people can have longer attention spans? Yeah, so you know, people have natural rhythms of attention when their focus can peak, when their focus wanes. Get to know your own personal rhythm when your peaks are. Um, For most people, it's mid-morning, mid-afternoon. Plan your day, plan your hardest tasks when you have to do the most creative work around those peaks. There are individual differences, you know, everyone is different. Discover what your own attentional peaks are and then plan your day around that. All right, Uh, thank you so much for joining us and shedding light on this. This is Dr. Gloria Mark and upcoming book is Attention Span. Uh, Hopefully you will have enough attention span to read it. Uh, I believe in you, so I believe you will. 
All right, uh, Dr. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. A lot of these people these days are saying, hey, you know what? You should give zero Fs and that that's to be celebrated. And there are some popular books that say, hey, you know what? Don't give any Fs at all. If you got any Fs lying around, keep them in your pocket, don't give them. Our next guest says the opposite. They actually should give an F. In fact, he wrote a book called Give a F, actually. His name is Dr. Alex Willis. Uh, Dr. Uh, sorry, Wills, Dr. Wills. Uh, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's awesome to be here to meet you. Oh, thank you, brother. I appreciate it. All right, so uh, talk to me. Uh, why should we give an F, and what does that mean to you? Well, most of us have read the subtle art of not giving an F. It's a pretty uh, entertaining, best-selling book. Um, however, after reading it a couple times, I started thinking. It's not really working and it kind of flies in the face of the evidence-based psychotherapy that I've been doing with my patients. So on deeper exploration, I started to wonder, what if we don't try to suppress our emotions? What if we let all of the Fs fly and see what happens? And some good things can come from that. I already find what you're saying fascinating. So talk to me about it. Okay, so we let our emotions fly, I'm already in. Uh, then what happens? Why is that a good thing? Well, if you think about it, um, by the time you have the thought, um, I'm not going to give an F, you've already given an F. So we're kind of uh, gaslighting ourselves by trying to control emotions that we're already having. So instead, if we practice uh, what I call radical emotional acceptance, then we can get more in tune with reality, especially our inner emotional reality to then make the best decisions for our lives based on our emotional wisdom. Okay, um, so now we're having a further conversation. Radical emotional acceptance, sounds radical. Yes. Uh, tell me more about <laughs> it. Yeah, um, I divide my book into five steps of radical emotional acceptance. Um, that's also the website, radicalemotionalacceptance.com. And it's a simple way that the layperson can follow the steps to have a better relationship with their own emotions in real time. Um, contrary to popular belief, giving an F doesn't have to take five hours out of your day. Instead, you can give an F in 10 seconds and you can go back about your business instead of trying to do all that mental gymnastics to kind of suppress it and say, you know what, I'm just not gonna give enough about that guy who rolled his eyes at me. And then we have nightmares about it later that night or something, you know? Okay, so that, that makes sense because uh, number one, uh, people who tell you they don't give an F, 98 out of 100 times they do. And I totally agree with you that they're giving a double F. Uh, <laughs> And they're doing twice the emotions to bottle up the original emotion. Totally agreed. Okay, so, but then of course the next question is, how do you express those emotions, right? So, okay, I accept it. Man, I was really angry that that guy cut me off, or maybe something even worse, right? Okay, but now what am I going to do with that anger? Right. Um, you know, anger is a great example. It's a very empowering emotion. Um, when you're, it's easy to get in touch with anger because when you're angry, nobody's gonna f with you because you'll kill him. And so, uh, the first um, step is to actually uh, 
realize that you have an F shield or an emotional shield such as a defense mechanism or anger and become curious about what is behind that shield so that you can name those more vulnerable emotions. Fast forwarding a bit, after you kind of do a little bit of inner analysis checking in with yourself, you can then decide, do I need to do an action at all? And if so, what action do I need to do? So that we're not really controlled by the emotions, but the emotions are rather informing our decisions. So you're making a more active decision about your emotions. Uh, am I gonna express it this way? Am I not going to express it? What form am I gonna express it in? But what I'm not going to do is bottle it up. Right, and you actually don't get to step four, which is act on the F um, until uh, you do sort of a little bit more of checking in with uh, listening to the F, um, kind of discovering what is the wisdom that I can um, you know, tap into. And then you get to make an informed decision about what to do or what not to do. Yeah, okay, uh, that, that makes sense. And, uh, and so, you say that you got to identify the emotions and that they're, and we just talked about that. And because they're preventing you from experiencing joy. So how do we make the transition from, okay, I have identified that I am angry and I'm gonna focus on how angry I am. I'm gonna figure out what to do with that anger. Okay, but when do I get to the joy part? Well, what's interesting, it's kind of paradoxical because here I am telling people, yeah, be sad and, and be scared and uh, experience hate and disgust. And people are like, nah, I don't want any of those unpleasant emotions. Um, it's a bit paradoxical because the reason that people don't experience joy is because we're so hung up on suppressing those emotions. I'm not an angry person, I, I don't feel hate, I have no hate in my heart, I don't have any fear, I don't give an F. And we waste all of that energy. And so no wonder we're depressed because we're walking around lying to ourselves and gaslighting ourselves all day. So is your thought here basically after you've processed the emotion in the appropriate way, you have closure with it and that you can move on to joy? Yeah, you know, um, I don't use the term negative emotions, but there are painful emotions and scary emotions and very unpleasant emotions, and they do hurt. And sometimes that intensity is quite high. And the, the goal isn't to make that pain go away. It's kind of like when you stub your toe, it's supposed to hurt like a, you know what, because it's serving a purpose. That's why we still have toes, that's why we still have feet. So in a way, when we get to step five of radical emotional acceptance, we're trying to find sincere gratitude for the Fs. Um, how are these unpleasant, painful, scary emotions actually trying to help me? And it doesn't, you know, it's not a magical pill that just sort of magically makes the emotions not painful. Quite the opposite. It's being okay that emotions are painful, but they serve a purpose. Yeah. Um, first of all, you're talking to the right guy. Okay. <laughs> you found the right hombre. Uh, because I not only uh, process that stuff, but I try to actually enjoy the negative emotions. Sorry for calling them negative, okay? But uh, <laughs> um, like, so if I have pain or I have something, like I get sick and I have uh, yeah, body weakness, right? You know, I try to soak that in, and I go, okay, well, this is a different experience I'm feeling, and and that's just as valid as anything else, and it's just. As much being uh, alive 
uh, as anything else. So uh, I try to soak it in, but I imagine that that's pretty hard for most folks. Right, it's kind of the opposite of what we've always been trained to do our entire lives. You know, suck it up. Um, let's not mope around. Let's not feel sad. Let's not get stuck in these negative emotions. Um, how can we think positive? Um, you know, stoicism teaches we got to minimize those negative, unpleasant emotions and maximize the positive ones. So it's quite counterintuitive and it takes a bit of coaching, which is why. You know, I can't do psychotherapy with every single patient in the world. So the book uses fictionalized characters. So hopefully the readers will be able to find themselves within the characters and see where the rubber meets the road because it does take a bit of coaching to help people get there um, to make it real for themselves until it slowly becomes natural. Okay, and you worked with a ton of patients. So have you seen this? Work because look, I I know it's possible because I've done it myself, right? But for the skeptical viewer out there, how how do you how do you coach someone into not being angry about being angry? I sit in a bit of a privileged position because by the time most people come to see me, they're they're ready for help. They're they're uh, they're willing to try something because they've tried everything they can to just not give enough. And it hasn't worked. If it was going to work, it would have worked by now. And so that's sort of a starting place. Um, there's a lot of psychotherapeutic techniques that we use to try to, you know, really meet the patient where they're at and to relate to them so that we can kind of uh, help them uh, see it become real in their lives. Um, but, you know, it's such a wonderful experience to see miracles every day of people uh, getting better because of, uh, you know, different interventions that we get to do. So Dr. Wills, uh, how about the situations where you actually shouldn't give it up? So, so someone is judging you, right? But they're judging you in an absurd way. And we're human, so we get affected by it anyway. So an example I use sometimes is a bunch of third graders mocking uh, Albert Einstein on his physics. They're like, oh yeah, Albert, I bet he's equals MC squared, right? <laughs> and so is he really supposed to give an F about that? <laughs> or is there a way? That we can compartmentalize and go, oh no, no, that that I don't give an F about. Well, you know, if he happened to give an F about that, um, he does, and and he can't help that. And so um, just accepting that that is the case. Um, but I also don't want to discount the defense mechanisms are there for a reason. Sometimes when you're in a very difficult demanding situation, you do want to have those defense mechanisms. You don't want to just go you know, purely into those vulnerable emotions because there might be you know, certain small periods of time where you have to power through, you have to be strong, you have to make it. So I, the, the defense mechanisms are there for a reason. But when we have time to kind of become introspective, then we can still validate those Fs that were going on underneath. Okay, um, so you're saying even if it's highly absurd that you give an F, okay, but at, the, at least recognize it and understand why you do, because it might be able to break down the reason for it and help dissipate it. Do I understand it right? Yeah, we don't really pick and choose the Fs we give. They kind of happen to us. I mean, I've got, I've had the most bizarre things come up. I'm like, why do I give an F about that? But if we greet those Fs with curiosity, then we can learn something about ourselves, learn something about the situation, and tap into that sixth sense of the emotional wisdom that we have. 
Yeah, and I'm here to tell you that it works because I mean, it, pre talking to you, seeing the book, etc. Um, this is what I've done. I when I feel something, I or or I think something, I break it down. Where did that thought come from? Where did that feeling come from? And then once you realize where it came from, I guarantee you, at least eight out of ten times, it's absurd. <laughs> and, uh, and and when you realize it's absurd, you go, oh, what am I worried about that for? <laughs> okay, <laughs> so give it a shot. Uh, that's my endorsement of the book, uh, <laughs> Dr. Alex Wills, and the book is Give an Effort, actually. Uh, so uh, check it out. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Jen. Great, great to meet you. Thanks.